Now, why don't we go ahead and turn, please, to John chapter 20. Over the last month, Emma and I have been on holiday with the kids. I got to preach at my home church, Christchurch, which is wonderful to see all them. Last week, I got to preach at Dural Baptist Church, which also went well, but I'd much rather preach here. It's good to be home. It's good to be back with you all. And I can say things that defy belief here that I can't say elsewhere. And it's just nice to be with a group of people that know you so well. And here in the next two weeks, we're going to be finishing up the book of John. Next week, we're going to be looking at um, John 20 from verse 30 to 31, as well as you said, just to finish up the book, which really means we tour through the book again. We'll look at it in its entirety really in one morning preach the Gospel of John and explain why it was written, which I'm looking forward to. This week we're going to be looking at what I've simply called, if you want to title, a simple picture of faith. So this is the penultimate message. You may be wondering, why are we not going through John 21? Well, the answer is because we actually did that when we did the story of Peter some weeks ago. So in some ways, John 21 is actually almost a prologue to the book. It almost finishes at the end of chapter 20. And in chapter 21, it's then a prologue, just helping us see what happened to Peter then. How did that come about, which we've already done. But here we have a simple picture of faith, John chapter 20, verses 19 through to 29. It reads as follows. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we've got to sing this morning all about the beautiful exchange. What you've done in our place in dying for us and in rising again. Lord, how incredible it is to sing of those things and marvel around Calvary and around the empty tomb. Lord, would we gather around your word then in this moment, post-resurrection, 
and be staggered at all that you're saying? Would you show us a simple picture of faith and would it impact us and have an impact on our lives today and for the days of our future? In Jesus' precious name, amen. Within every generation, however old you are or young young you are, there's always a few fearless crazies out there, isn't there? Daredevils, people who do things that you think, I can't believe they're actually doing that. When I was a kid, I remember being about six years old and hearing about Evil Knievel. Evil Knievel was this dude that kept getting on a motorbike and trying to jump over as many buses as possible. I think he broke 433 bones in his lifetime. This guy nearly died every time. And that appealed to me, particularly when I was young. I thought, I want to be Evil Knievel. Because it just sounded so amazing to try and jump over buses and then sort of nearly die, but not die and stand up and wave to the crowd. Thank you very much. I just thought, this is so cool. But I was very aware that this guy is a complete nut job. I mean, this is ridiculous that he would even attempt these things. He is a fearless crazy. Also, Elaine Robert, for those of you that are younger, he's known as the French Spider-Man. And he's the guy that gets seen on the news at different times, climbing the shard or climbing different places without any ropes, without any help. Should Should he fall to the ground, he is dead. But he tries to go up the sides of buildings and you think, you are a nut job. And every generation has them. These daredevils in the 1800s, that was no exception. They had another Frenchman, it always seems to be the French, something in the blood. Jean-Francois Gravelet, otherwise known as the great Blondin, who I've mentioned before. He was the 1800s daredevil. He was the guy that everybody would be talking about, both in France and around the world. He was a French acrobat, and he became famous for numerous things that he actually achieved. But the thing that defined him was when in 1859... He set up a tightrope from one side of Niagara Falls to the other, from Canada to America, 50 metres above the water, 335 metres long. And he proceeded to gather a great crowd around him and do some incredible things. And so he actually went over this tightrope blindfolded at one point. He went over normal and then he came back and he said, well, I'm going to do it blindfolded now. And people are like, oh my gosh, he's going to die. Which, which I don't know about you, but for me, when I think somebody's going to die, I want to watch. It's a strange thing. He's going, to, okay, let's watch, gather the family. Which is it's even sicker when you think about it. But he went over and he comes back, he's blindfolded. He then tries to do it in a sack. What that must have looked like, only now. But he actually got in a sack and starts hopping over and comes back. He, he breaks for lunch at one point. This is true. He actually made an omelette in the middle. So between America and Canada, he actually cooked an omelette. I've seen that picture where he's just hanging on the tightrope and he's, he's cooking this omelette. He does it on stilts at one point. And in his grand finale, what he does is he decides that he's going to take a wheelbarrow from America to Canada, and then Canada and back, along this tightrope. So he takes the wheelbarrow, he gets gets ready, he gets set. Everybody is like, I can't believe he's going to do this, but he's going to try. So he gets over in the wheelbarrow and comes back, and everybody's applauding, thinking this guy is just unbelievable. It's just genius what he's doing. He then says, well, who thinks that I can manage to take a wheelbarrow and a sack of potatoes in the wheelbarrow to one side to the other? And they're like, oh, you surely can, Blondin, you can. So they get in and he does that and he comes on back. And then it is his final grand finale piece. He says, having seen all that I've done, having seen that I can take the wheelbarrow, having seen that I can take wheelbarrow full of sack of potatoes, who believes that if someone was to get into my wheelbarrow, I could take them to the other side and back? And the crowds are like, yes, Blondin, you surely could, you're amazing, you are the great Blondin. And as the crowd is developing a euphoria, he then simply says, okay, who's in? 
And of course, the crowd reaction is exactly like yours in that moment. <laughs> no one wanted in. No one wanted to get in. Everybody allegedly claimed that I'm sure you can do it. I'm convinced that you could do this. But when it came to any one of them getting in, no one wanted to. What happened to Blondin in that moment is he came across the question of faith. He was faced up personally himself with the crowd around him with the reality of the question of faith. What does true faith actually look like? And the Gospel of John has been all about that. This book, in essence, is all about faith. In chapter 20, verse 30, this is what we read. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All the time he's been trying to create scenes and give us facts so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that through believing we may have life in his name. That's how he set up the whole book very deliberately. It's all about faith. And in this text then, prior to him giving the purpose of the book, what I love about it is he takes on the question of faith by giving us, I think, a simple picture of faith. He explains to us through a picture what does true faith actually look like? What does belief in Jesus actually look like? And what has to happen to an individual? What, what do they need to hear or see for that true faith to be a reality? What does it actually take for someone to truly believe. Prior to him coming to the crescendo of the book where he points at all of us and says, right, over to you then. This is why I wrote it. Do you believe? He gives us a window on the eve of that statement as to what true faith really looks like. He wants us to see it and grasp it and examine it. And so the way we're going to proceed this morning is as follows. I've just got three points which are actually just three sets of characters. There's numerous ways, I think, of preaching this text all to get us to the same point. But I think to be most faithful to it, I, I want to treat it like a narrative, which is the way it's written. And so we have the disciples, we have Thomas, and then we have another set of characters that I think John wants us to see so that we may see and enjoy this simple picture of faith. So let's start where he starts. Number one, the disciples, which is what we see in verses 19 through 23. I mean, imagine the scene prior to this moment. The disciples have been walking with Jesus for three years. Imagine that. Imagine that genuinely. We have been in existence as a local church nearly three years. Imagine that we hadn't grown in that three years. It was just the people that started three years ago. And since starting, we've spent every day together. That's a long time. We've eaten together. We've laughed together cried together, we rejoice together. This is all what they've been doing as disciples with Jesus. He's, he's their leader. He's their master. He's the one that's been teaching them. He's the one that called them to come to him. And they gladly came. And they've been with him for three glorious years. And yet three days ago, he was arrested on the edge of the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter tries to put up a fight. He's really not happy about it. So he tries to stab some guy in the top of his head, but he comes off the helmet and actually chops his ear off. It's one of those slightly awkward moments in Scripture where you're like, oh, I wish you hadn't done that. But he does, and 
It's just a reaction to what is taking place. And now, three days on, Jesus is dead. And you find yourself then with the disciples huddled in a room that's locked because just like Brandon pointed out last week, you're in despair. You had thought this one was the Messiah. You had thought this is the one that had come to save the world. This is the one who was going to do great things. And yet now he's dead. What are you going to do with your time now? What are you going to do with your life? Was that last three years just a waste? But more than that, the Romans that put Jesus on the cross, well, they're now looking for you. The Jewish authorities are looking for you. You're fearful that the same is going to happen to you. And so you are in the upper room, you are in a room with your friends, huddled together, with the door well and truly locked. You don't want anybody to come in and no one's leaving at the moment because you are scared. And then, incredibly, Jesus appears in the room. You had heard that he was alive, that the tomb was, to, was not there. There was no one in it. But you struggle to believe that. But now, he's miraculously in the room with you. How does he get in? No one really knows. Some commentators say that he miraculously must have walked through the wall or through the door. Other commentators said, no, he must have miraculously opened the door. I have no idea. But one thing is, it was miraculous. The door is locked, and now he's in. And then, incredibly, he issues these incredible words to the disciples. Verse 19b, peace be with you. Or in the Hebrew, the word shalom. This is a very standard Hebrew greeting. There's nothing unfamiliar about this. This is the way they would greet people. It's very standard in the way they would talk. And yet, in this moment... This phrase is packed with meaning. When he says shalom to them, this isn't just any other greeting of hi. This is packed with truth to say peace be with you. It is indicative, first and foremost, I think, of Jesus' peace with them. I mean, imagine the scene. You have, last time you saw Jesus, run away from him. You've been with him three years. You've said, we'll never leave you. We will stand with you. And even to death, we will stand with you, Saviour. Three days ago, you ran off from him. You left him. He'd been arrested. He was being dragged away. You run in fear for your life. And now you're hiding. And then he comes into the room and says to you, peace be with you. It's indicative of his amazing grace. It's indicative of a savior that says, listen, guys, I know you did a runner. But it's okay. Peace be with you. You don't need to be fearful in this moment. I've come back and I forgive you. I knew you were going to do it anyway. So it is indicative of Jesus' peace with them, but it's also indicative, I think, of of their peace with God. Although back in Genesis 3, God promises a serpent crusher, one who will come to get them back into the garden, one who will come in splendor and grace and make it possible for individuals to be saved and make it possible for individuals who are by nature sinful to once again have peace with God. And Jesus Christ, in this moment, turns up in the room and says, peace be with you. It's as if, once again, he's just saying, it's finished. That which I was sent for, that which I came for, That which I came to achieve in your place, 
It is done. So peace be with you. Shalom. Isn't that incredible? It's more than just a greeting. It's filled with depth and care and mercy towards this group of individuals. That's why he says it twice and then again to Thomas. He says it all over again very specifically. Shalom. Peace be with you. But he then shows them his hands and his side, proving to them that it really is him. And then in an absolutely world-changing moment, he both commissions them and inaugurates them as his body, as his church. Look again at verse 21. After showing them his hands and his side, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, Even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. In this moment, he is commissioning them as his disciples. As the Father has sent me, I now send you. It's very evident that Jesus is going to go be with the Father. The ascension is imminent. Before he goes, I want you to know in the same way that the Father sent me, for in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then evidently, John chapter 1, the Word was sent. Well, I've finished my job. I died for you. I rose again. And as the Father has sent me, I now send you. He commissions them to the task of mission. He commissions them to the task of going and making disciples of all nations. And then in verse 22, he births them as the early church by breathing life into them. That's incredible. It says that he breathed on them. And he did it very specifically and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This isn't the first time Jesus has done this to a body. Genesis chapter 2, he does the same thing. Adam. And what does he do? Jesus, as the creator of all, says, breathe life into his nostrils. And this guy comes alive. That's pretty cool. He's doing it again here to a body, the church, the local church, as they begin to make way out into the nations. He breathes life into them. It is is both reminiscent of Genesis chapter 2, and it is also, I think, a foretaste of Acts chapter 2, which we'll be looking at in a few months, where Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit comes in power and splendor, and off they go for real. But even here, it is a foretaste. Even here, he's inaugurating them as his church. He's commissioning to the task and inaugurating them as the church, a church that would go from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth, the United Kingdom, to France, to Germany, to America, to Australia. It is happening right here where he's inaugurating them. I would have loved to have been there. Wouldn't you have loved just to have seen? To have seen that moment where these guys gathered together, huddled in a room, believe that Jesus is gone. They're in fear for their lives. They're in utter despair. He appears to them and then full of grace and mercy, breathes peace to them and breathes the Holy Spirit into them, commissioning them for the task and sending them into the world as his body. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there for that? I would have. If I could have just been a fly on the wall observing I would have loved to have done that because I think this moment was not only monumental, it was an incredible picture of amazing grace. These disciples promised Jesus they'd never leave him. 
they did. They're in fear. They don't really believe that he's going to rise again. They're not running around trying to find him. They think he's gone. They think it's game over for them. They think it's all over in their lives and if they're not careful, they will suffer the same fate. And yet Jesus turns up in grace, knowing that they left him, comes into the room, tells them, guys, peace be with you. And he doesn't then just tell them off. He just quite the other, doesn't he? Peace be with you. Right, now go and do some work for me. As the Father has sent me, I now send you. And I'm going to breathe life into you as the church, my bride, that you are going to take the gospel to from Jerusalem to Judea to the end of the earth. Start telling people about Jesus. Start telling people about the glories of Calvary. Because as the Father has sent me, I now send you. What a wonderful picture of the amazing grace of God. Folks, when you think about your own story, it isn't any different, is it? Who amongst us has been so faithful to the Lord that we've never looked back? Who amongst us was born in such a way that even being born, we just came out of our mother's womb and said, Jesus, it's all about you. None of us. First word we ever learnt probably was mine. <laughs> we never have to teach our kids that word. They go, Mum, Dad, mine. And you think, it's, uh, how is that? It's because we're all sinful by nature. We all want We all want things. We all want life as much as possible to revolve around us. And yet at the right time, even when the door is locked in our lives, Jesus Christ rocks into our world, gives us a gift of faith, and then says, Shalom, peace be with you. You're now right with the Father. Through faith in me, you're at peace with the Father. You've been forgiven of your sin and adopted into the family of God. Heaven is surely your home, reconciled and redeemed by my amazing grace. So now, church, Christian, come and do some work for me. As the Father sent me, I now send you. Our story is just like that. The people who are running away from him with the door locked, he pursues and in grace saves. And that doesn't just say, well, if you wouldn't mind sitting at the back while other people who are better Christians do the work. He says, good, you're a Christian. Well, therefore, as the Father has sent me, I now send you. I want you to be my hands and feet in the world. I've saved you for that role. What a wonderful picture of amazing grace and is the picture we see here with the disciples because this is their moment of amazing grace. This is their moment in history where they encounter the mercy and the grace of God. And yet there is one guy, sadly and unfortunately, that misses out on this special moment, namely Thomas, which is point two from verses 24 to 28. I mean, for some reason and somewhat unfortunately, Thomas, Thomas is AWOL. Thomas is not with them. And this is a sad moment for Thomas. The Bible doesn't expand for us where Thomas is. It's an expand for us anywhere why he is missing. But what is clear is he was missing and this would be bad news for Thomas. See, just like for the rest of the disciples, Thomas would have wanted this. He would have. It isn't like Thomas is saying, oh, you know what, I can't believe Jesus is back. He's saying, oh, he's in effect saying, I, I want this to be real. I so want this to be real. But he's fearful in effect of being gullible. He's basically thinking, you know what, maybe you guys seen a ghost or and maybe you guys are having me on. Uh, I mean, this is such a big deal. I want it to be real. 
but I'm not going to believe it. Until, until I see his hands and I can put my finger in those scars and until I see his, see his body and I can hold it, because he may be a ghost. I, I'm not going to believe this. One of the unfortunate fruits. I was thinking about poor Thomas this week. And, and Thomas is going to need some counselling in heaven. Unfortunately, Thomas, Thomas is going to be universally known forever as Doubting Thomas. And, and I think that's really unfortunate for Thomas. I mean, we are going to encounter Thomas in heaven because we'll go around and we're not going to recognise everybody. So we'll go, one day we will encounter Thomas. We'll say, hi, who are you? And he'll say, Thomas. And in that moment, you're going to think, uh-huh, I know the one, Doubting Thomas. And, and you think that's really unfortunate for, for Brother Thomas and it's going to be a sad moment. Well, Sovereign Grace, I want to prepare you for that moment where you encounter Thomas. Okay, I want to prepare your heart and your voices for that moment where you encounter him. And, and here's what I want you to understand. Then. John chapter 20 has nothing to do with Thomas being a doubter. It's here because John wants us to see and God wants us to see that Thomas is believing Thomas. And that's what this story is all about. Not his doubt, but where he goes next, which is why it's here. Look with me at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I mean, what wonderful kindness and grace from the Lord again, don't you think? He could have just said to Thomas, Thomas, shut up, it's clearly me. But he didn't. In grace, Thomas, if this is what you need, then go ahead. Touch my hands. Touch my side. Because I want you to believe. I want you to really understand that this is me. And in verse 28, we have one of the pinnacles of the book. Thomas's response. Because in verse 28, it says, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. That is the one of the most incredible lines in the whole book. And seen correctly, if you were to read the book in one sitting, you would see this is exactly where John has been seeking to take us all along. He's been trying to get us to see what true faith really is. And the response from Thomas is one of the clearest and greatest declarations of belief in Jesus Christ recorded anywhere in this gospel and in any of the gospels. No one else declares Jesus Christ as my Lord and my God, which is why it's here. Doubting Thomas is believing Thomas. He's set up as an example of what true faith looks like. He says to him, Lord. Here it's used in the very fullest sense of Jehovah, Master, Sovereign and King. And he recognises, this is you. You're Lord. You are, you are Sovereign and you are King over all things, which is why I'm seeing you again in this moment. He also declares him as God. No one has ever declared that in this Gospel before. <laughs> You may not realise that, but in 20 chapters, no one has ever said, Jesus said it, but no one has ever said, you're God. Until now. Thomas says it. And in both things, in Lord and God, he, 
uses the personal pronoun prior to it. So it is my Lord and my God as he personalizes these things to himself. Thomas is transformed in amazing grace in this moment. As he encounters Jesus, as he sees the risen Christ, his response is to hit his knees and declare him as my Lord and my God, my King and my Savior, my Sovereign Master. And the one who in the beginning was the word and was with God and the one who is God. I see you now. My Lord and my God. That's why in verse 30 he then goes on to say, okay, I've painted it for you now then. So that's why I've written this book. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Makes more sense when you understand how he set Thomas up very deliberately. My friends, I submit, submit to you that herein lies the point of why John is so keenly inserting this story of Thomas here in chapter 20. He's seeking to give us a simple picture of faith. A picture of what faith actually looks like. A faith that says, you know what? I get it. You are my king. And you are my God. I take you as my king. I recognize that you are the one who made the universe. And so I take you personally as my king. And I take you as my God, realizing that you died in my place. And you rose again in my place. So Lord, you're my Lord. And you're my God. My whole life now is all about you. Because you're real. You are the Lord and the king. You know, many cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example... I think that in this moment, Thomas was committing blasphemy. And so in their Bibles, they read exactly what we read. But they would say that in this moment, Thomas is effectively swearing. He's saying, ha, my Lord and my God. Well, that's weird. Because Jesus goes on to commend him. Is Jesus commending him for blasphemy? It's one of the most clear and explicit moments in the whole of the Bible where an individual is claiming Jesus to be God and Jesus, in effect, through his actions, says, yep. No blasphemy, just applause. Thomas, you've believed. This is what it was all about. You understanding that I am your Lord and your King and your God and your Saviour. This is a picture of faith and one that John, I think, so keenly wants us to see. And it's as we see it that I think then we see the third group of characters. The third set of individuals, namely future generations. Namely, us. This is where you've seen, you come into the scene and you see your own faces. Because it is our faces that are so clearly seen here in verse 29. Verse 29a, he says, Jesus said to him, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Of course, the answer to that is yes. I believe because I've seen you. I, you, know, I, you let me touch your body and you let me touch your hand. and See, I believe. That's exactly what the disciples did as well. The disciples were in disarray. But then when Jesus appeared in the room and they realized this is Jesus, they believed. This is, this is the Lord. This is the King. This is God. Well, that's exactly what's happened to Thomas. Thomas is now seen with his eyes and he has gone ahead then and fully believed. He's come up with this de- great declaration of faith. Here's when we come into the scene. 
Because Jesus goes on to say this, Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Namely, yes. He's talking about you now. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's talking about a day to come. He's talking about future generations. He's talking about a people who will never get to see him in the flesh. He's talking about groups of people like Sovereign Grace Church in Sydney who will never actually see him in the flesh prior to faith and yet they exhibit faith nonetheless. They believe. They have the same response as Thomas in their lives at various points of, you are he, you are my Lord and my God. I believe in you with all my heart and I follow you with all my strength and all my being. Jesus is communicating about us in this moment as he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, it's at this important moment, I think incredibly we see our faces. And it's at this moment, incredibly, I think we learn something which is absolutely vital to our faith and absolutely vital to our mission as Christians. And it's simply this, that you don't have to see to believe. You don't have to see it. Belief can be real without actually seeing. And Jesus says, in fact, blessed are those who respond like that. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that has implications, I think, for every one of us in this room. See, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. You're not actually a Christian at this point. And maybe you've been thinking for some time, you know, if only I could see him, I'd respond. You know, if I could actually see Jesus, it'd be a heck of a lot easier. And I get that. You know, we were chatting with one of our kids actually earlier this week and, and this child was saying exactly the same thing. You know, Dad, if I could see, I'd, I'd be in. But, you know, I can't see much. And you think, I, I understand that. I get that. And so you say, well, you can't see the wind either, can you? You see the effects. And Yeah, but that's wind. And, you know, okay, I know. It's a poor analogy. I'm sorry. And you're meant to say, yes, Dad, I'm a Christian. You know, but you didn't. And, you know, and, and I get that. And it's good because I love it. I love it with kids when they're just honest with you and you're able to be real with them and they're being real with you. And and I get it. I get it when we're talking to people who don't know the Lord and it can be hard on occasions to think, if only I could see him, you know, I'd be able to respond differently. But Jesus Christ himself says, you know what? You don't need to see me to believe. You just need to hear about me because it's been written all about me. And that's what this book is all about. It's all about the greatest mission ever told. And as soon as you get into the Gospel of John, it's all about the mission of Jesus Christ and how God did indeed become flesh and come on this greatest rescue mission ever told. See, the Bible, contrary to rumours, is really not a book filled with rules and all the things that we have to do as Christians. It's just not. It's filled with the glories of Calvary and it's filled with the glories of a Saviour who came to save the world. It starts with God actually making us actually creating human beings, actually knitting human beings together in our mother's womb. And then it continues with mankind wanting, or allegedly God wanting to spend time with him and find perfect um, fulfilment and security and purpose in him. But very quickly we see mankind forgetting that bit, rejecting him and deciding they'll have the world instead. And that's the world we've all grown up in. We have to open the paper and realise this is really messed up. 
It is really messed up because we've been messing it up for centuries. It was never meant to be like this. We were meant to spend time with the Lord and find our identity and security and purpose in Him and following His Word, but we didn't. We rejected Him. Because of that, we're effectively cut off from God. We're cut off from the ideal of what we were made for. We're cut off from spending time with the one who created us. That's why we go around life often so confused as to what is the purpose of my life? What is the point? And yet God in grace, knowing the danger we are in, both in this world and the world to come, knowing that we will be cut off from him, both in this world and in the world to come, in our sin, said, I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to come in grace in the personal work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to send my son, putting on flesh, and he's going to come after you. That's what the Gospel of John is all about. Jesus Christ coming to the earth and saying time again, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. The consequences of our sin is death. The consequences of our sin is the wrath of God and being cut off from God. And yet Jesus Christ at Calvary took that for us. He took death for us. And in the moment at Calvary when he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is in effect in that moment receiving the wrath of God in our place, receiving what it is to be cut off from God in the full as a consequence of sin. My sin. Your sin. And right at the end of the Gospel of John then, and as we go into the New Testament, he makes it clear. How can you know then salvation? How can you know what it is to come back to the one who made you? How can you know what it is to be forgiven of your sin? Reconciled to the God that made you? Adopted into the family of God, knowing that you're a child of his and always will be? What is it like to have the gavel come down on your life and be declared sinless and justified? What is it like to know that when you die, heaven is going to be your home? How do you access that? Well, John tells us, he says, you want to know? Well, this is what you need to do. You need to hit your knees and declare Jesus Christ as my Lord and my God, just like Thomas did. Doubting Thomas is set up for us as the greatest example ever seen. One who would declare their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord, the King, and as his Saviour. Paul then carries it on in the book of Romans and says, you know, if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that he rose again, then you will be saved. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, I appeal to you, do that today. Know today that you are right with God. Know today that you have come back to the the one who made you so that you can find your identity and security and purpose in him. Know what it is today to be right with God. Maybe you think, you know, well, I thought being a Christian was I'd have to go to church and I've got to do charity and I've got to give and I've got to serve. And Listen, if you become a Christian, I suggest to you, if you become a real Christian, you'll want to do some of those things. That's not because you have to you'll find your life dramatically changes and you will want to do some of those things. But doing those things never makes you a Christian. And what makes you a Christian is genuine faith, which is all about you and my Lord and my God. And when you do that, it changes everything. It changed everything for me. In some ways it turned my world upside down. And I love the upside down world I then walked into changed my life. 
If you don't know Jesus Christ, do that today. But if you do know Jesus Christ, understanding that to unbelievers, I think this is a call to faith. I think for you as Christians, there is also a call for you here too. See, the reality of this text is that people don't have to see to believe. And when you examine the text then, here is the point. This for you as a believer is a call to go. They don't have to see to believe. So as the Father has sent me, I now send you. It's a call to go. It's a call to brandish the gospel and actually go. It's a call to brandish all that we've been hearing about since March last year, the glories of the gospel in the, in the gospel of John. And right at the end, he's effectively looking at you in your, in your eyes as a disciple, as somebody who's claiming to be a Christian, and he's saying, great, as the Father has sent me, then I now send you. It's a call to go. And they don't have to see to believe. They just have to hear. So you turn with me to the book of Romans, just over a few pages. Romans chapter 10. I think the Apostle Paul just says some things that are so, so wonderful and so dear to us. In Romans chapter 10, verse 11, he says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. But there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love that. That is a true gospel message. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Any individual, whatever your past, whatever your situation... If you declare Jesus Christ as your Lord and God, you will be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. But then he says as follows. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What he's effectively saying is, listen, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone. But who's going to tell them? Who's going to go? Who's been sent? Who are the preachers that have been sent to do this task, to declare the gospel and to tell people about Jesus? Because how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Well, it is Jesus here in John chapter 20, verse 21, that answers Paul's question. Who? Verse 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. The disciples in that moment were representative of every one of us in this room. They were disciples. People who are giving their lives to following Jesus Christ. And when you become a Christian, you are by nature a disciple. You can't be a Christian and not a disciple. We're all disciples of Christ. And so who is going to tell them? Who has been sent? Who has been equipped for the task? Who has been commissioned by the Lord to go and tell people about Jesus? Is it preachers? Negative. It's disciples. It's people. It's all of us. Because as the Father sent me, he's effectively looking at us all in that moment and saying, I now send you. I send you to go. 
Now, folks, I was thinking about it this week. The commission on our lives is huge. I mean, honestly, the job that we have been called to as Christians is, is out of this world. You know, I think sometimes as Christians, and honestly, I don't sense it in this church, but I think sometimes we can start getting so worried about what roles we might play. Am I going to be a group leader? Am I going to be a pastor? And Oh, my life, my life doesn't have meaning without some of these things. If you're a Christian, you have been commissioned to the greatest mission that anybody has ever heard of, far surpassing any roles we play primarily in the church. We've been called to take the gospel out to those around us. Every individual in this room has been called. Are you called? Yes. We're called to go. <laughs> We're called to go and take the gospel out to all nations. We're called to take the gospel out to those around us, to our communities, to people around us in our lives, the people that God is sovereignly bringing into our lives, in family, in friends, in work, in relationships. He's then effectively looking down through time and saying, as the Father sent me, I now send you. That's why you're there. To interact with these people. Can we save anybody in ourselves? No. Never. And that's why he gives us the gospel. The power of God unto the salvation for all who believes. As Pete Greasy said, the sticky bombs that we stick on people's lives and then we move away and say, Jesus, please let it go off. But we just keep sticking them. We're called to go. We can't argue anybody in. I was talking to a guy just this week who was having a massive crisis of faith outside of this church. We had a, we had a morning together and you just think, I'm so limited. I'm not going to be able to argue you in in this moment. So I'm just going to pray for you and we'll see what the Lord does. And after sharing the gospel, we're, we're kind of done. But we are nonetheless called to go. We're called to befriend people, just like Jesus did, friend of sinners. We're called to seek to win people, just like Jesus did. We're called to prepare, to prepare and preach the gospel to people, just like Jesus did as he sought to win them. The commission on our lives is overwhelming. And yet the truth is, if we're honest, if I'm honest, it can be very tempting to ignore that commission. And it can be very tempting to huddle together as a group of Sovereign Grace Church disciples and just like three days after Jesus died, run to a room and lock the door. And gather on a Sunday morning in the room and sing his praises and proclaim it's all about you. My whole life is all about you, Jesus. Do what you will with my life. I want my whole life to be about you. And then we have a wonderful coffee together. We enjoy fellowship. We are weeping together. We are laughing together. We are praying for one another. And then we leave the room. And on the way home in the car, we talk to those we're with about what a good morning we've had. And then on Monday, it's like we've never been to church at all. It's all changed. The commission, oh, I've got a lot on, you know, I'm very busy. And I'm scared. What will people think of me if I really start to live for Jesus in these contexts that I'd be given to? And, you know, I've got a lot on in my own life, you know, and my wife and I, we're going through some challenges at the moment and, and that's a lot on. And I should just give myself to that. I haven't got any time for outreach. Yeah, I appreciate that they're going to hell outside the saving grace of God, but, you know, we're having a few disagreements and, do you hear what we can be tempted to do? Given the light of our commission, we need to be out. We need to be befriending people, loving people, telling them about Jesus. And yet I know in my own life too, it can be very, very tempting to hide.
There's lots of commissions that I think are like that. I heard a story some time ago about a United States police officer, which always reminds me of some of our guys that have gone through these things. And he's at a final exam, and he's been given a list of three questions. They're very easy by very nature, but then there's one question right at the end that he gets asked, and I think it is so insightful. He gets asked this. You were on patrol in Brooklyn when an explosion occurs in a gas main in a nearby street. Upon investigation, you find that a large hole has been blown in the sidewalk and there is an overturned van lying nearby. Inside the van, there is a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. You recognize the woman as the wife of your divisional supervisor, who is supposed to be presently away in Texas. A passing motorist stops to offer you assistance, and you realize that he is a man who has been wanted for armed robbery for some time. Suddenly, a man runs out of a nearby house shouting that his wife is expecting a baby and that the shock of the explosion has made the birth imminent. Another man is crying for help, having been blown into an adjacent canal by the explosion and he cannot swim. (laughs) It is quite a scene, obviously. (laughs) And so the question master says as follows, describe then in a few words what actions you would take. (laughs) Well, police officer thought for a moment, picked up his pen, and then wrote as follows. One sentence. I would take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. (laughs) 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 Oh, I would take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. My friends, we can be so tempted to do that, I think, every Sunday when we leave. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. Okay, so what's for dinner? Because life's got to get on and, you know, we've got to earn money and life's got to crack on and I need friends. and Yeah, life group, yeah, we should do that because I need some care in that. What? We've been called to a desperate and dying world. That's why Jesus came, because he loved the world. We've been sent to a world that needs Jesus. We've been sent to a world that we open the paper and we can see it is dying and rotting away. And we have the answer to change that. We have the answer to change people's lives in a moment. And yet it can be so tempting to take off our uniforms and mingle with the crowd. Folks, I want to encourage you, given the profound significance of what we've been called to and given the importance of what Jesus is saying here, that you no longer need to see to believe. You just need to hear. And given the commission then that we've been given to go and tell, I want to encourage you, let us not be a people then who take off our uniforms and mingle with the crowd. We must not do that. Next week we have a Reason for God Sunday. It's an ideal opportunity to invite people. It's an ideal opportunity to think, this week leading up, I'm not just going to take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. Who could I bring? Who could I invite that can then hear about the gospel and by God's grace maybe respond, which is our prayer. We have clubs and societies going on all the time where we can engage with people and create platforms upon which we can share the gospel with them. And numerous times in our life, whether it be the school gate or the college or the workplace or the clubs that we're involved in, numerous opportunities pass us daily time and time again where we can befriend for the purpose of sharing the gospel with people. It is the gospel that changes people's lives. Let us not then take off our uniforms and mingle with the crowd. 
Let us keep our uniforms on and let people see then the difference in our lives so that we may tell them about Jesus. Because it's the only thing that changes lives and blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What does true faith actually look like? Looks like believing Thomas. My Lord and my God. And what does it actually take for someone to believe? They don't have to see, but they have to hear. So let's go tell them, amen. We've been called, so let's do it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that your word really isn't complex. It's clear and it's evident what you're calling us to do and what you indeed have done. You have died in our place at Calvary. You took the price of the fall. You took the consequences of our sin in absolute full. And then three days later, in majesty, revealing that it truly is finished, you rose again. Lord, I pray then, would we have ears to hear your word today? You are so clearly and evidently sending us. You've even equipped us by breathing the Holy Spirit into our lives. Lord, when we are afraid, when we lack courage to go, would we remember that you are in us, you are with us, equipping us for the task in hand. And Lord, would we then go and would we go mindful of who is with us? The song from age to age. The great God, the great King of all who created things. And as we share the gospel, you can in a moment, in the blink of an eye, change someone's life. So would we go in courage? Would we go in faith? Would we go in purpose? And would all glory go to you in Jesus' name?